Turn please to Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I want to read verses 1 through 16. Philippians chapter 3. Once you've found that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word, and I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to embrace uh, the truth here. And Father, we pray that you would move in us that we might know Christ, know him better through this word and through the experience of our lives with him. Father, it is no small thing to take up the scripture, and so I pray that you would grant us all the grace uh, that we need for this particular task. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we have Attained. I want this morning, if God will help us, to just call our attention to verses 10 and 11 in this passage. You know, this is our third week through this, and uh, I just want us to look at these two verses. Let me read them again, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, these uh, two verses um, constitute the foundation for really what Paul has said thus far. He said that he has counted as lost all that he once thought to be gained. That is, he once thought that all that he had done and all that was done to him religiously in the context of his family counted for him, was for him, righteousness. That is, rightness before God. And that rightness then led to his being justified by God. To be justified means to be declared as righteous. And he thought that he was declared as righteous because of his own righteousness, because he had done all that was required of him and that he was right before God, therefore God would declare him justified. However, Paul came to realize that wasn't true. And he came to realize that wasn't true when he came 
to know Christ. Upon knowing Christ, he understood what real righteousness was, and he knew that he didn't have it. And he knew then that the only way that he could be justified, that he declared righteous by God, was to receive righteousness that come, came through faith in Christ, trusting in Christ, that he would be then the recipient of this gift of God's righteousness that came through faith in Christ, that was really Christ's own righteousness. All right? Are you with me? That was week number one. Um, now, uh, excuse me. Now, he also then said that he would continue to count, not just in the past counted, but continue to count as loss all things for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in him, not having a righteousness of, of his own, but rather having that righteousness that was a gift of God. And so he continued on living this life, understanding everything in relationship to knowing Christ. And so now he comes and he says that his heart's desire, the very drive of his life, the very motivation of his life, the very goal of his life is to know Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him. That's what he desires. And so the question for us this morning is what does that mean and what are the means to knowing Christ. Now, to begin, let me just make a number of very general observations about this, these couple of verses. First observation is this, and that is that knowing Christ is the culmination of all that was promised in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. You see, God began to reveal himself to his people, his covenant people, to Israel, so that they might know him. And that was God's desire that he would be known by his people. For instance, in Exodus uh, in chapter 10, you don't need to turn to this, it's just, just a little grab and go. Um, uh, Exodus 10, verse 1, this is in the middle of uh, the Israelites uh, were in captivity in Egypt. Uh, God's sending the plagues. This is the eighth plague. But he said this before, and he's going to say this again in this context and many more in the Old Testament. Moses writes, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptian, Egyptians and what signs I have done among them. And here it is, that you may know that I am the Lord. In the old covenant, God revealed himself by word, but also primarily through what he did. He said, watch me. You want to get to know me? Watch me. And so you're going to see in what I'm doing in Egypt and you're going to see what I'm going to do later and you know because of what I can do and what I do that I am the Lord. There's none other that I'm the Lord that you're to bow before me and to worship me. In fact, the prophet uh, Jeremiah uh, puts it like this in Jeremiah in chapter 9 and verse uh, 23. Uh, he writes this. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. That is, he said, don't, don't boast in anything inherent of your own, but boast in this. Let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you want to boast, if you want to be confident in something, be confident not in your riches, not in your wisdom, but be confident in the fact that you know God. There's no other confidence really in life apart from that. If you don't know God, you can have no confidence in living out this life. But if you do, take your confidence or boast, as he says, in that. 
To make sure that will take place, God makes this promise, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says, this is what's going to happen when all is said and done. The culmination of all of this is that you'll know me. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, it shouldn't surprise us then that he's come to reveal God. For instance, as the Apostle John puts it in John in chapter 1, verse 18, he puts it like this of Jesus. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that is Jesus, he has made him known. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he brings God up close and personal so that we can see him, so that we can get to know him, because that's God's intention all along, that we know him. Uh, Jesus does this, obviously. In, for instance, in John 5, verse 19, John writes the saying of Jesus, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus could tell Philip on the night that he was betrayed, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I've shown you the Father. That's what I came to do. So that you would know and would be able to know God. Jesus puts it himself very succinctly uh, in his prayer on that night that he was betrayed. John chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying, this is it. This is what it's all about. This is life eternal. This is life from God. If you want to have life from God, the only way to do that is to know God and know Jesus Christ, whom he sent. There's no life apart from him. Remember, Jesus said, he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. This is it. There's only life through me. And knowing Christ is eternal life. So much so, Jesus is able to say in verse 24 of that very same prayer, he says, Father, I desire that they, that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's saying, listen, I want them so much to know me that a day will come when they'll be in my very presence, in glory, face to face. No longer, as the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians 13, seeing through a mirror darkly, a glass dimly, but rather face to face, being known, knowing him as we're truly known, he says, right there. That kind of intimacy. And of course, again, that's Jesus. When Paul writes to the church uh, in Colossae, he puts, puts it like this about Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. So if you see Jesus, you're seeing God so that you might know him. Then in verse 19, for in him that is in Christ, in Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus comes so that we may know God. 
uh, the author of Hebrews, very straightforwardly in chapter 1 of Hebrews and verse 3, speaks of Jesus like this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That is, if you see Jesus, God is radiating from him. You can see the very essence of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint Greek word there is like a, like a, a dye from which you would use as a pattern to make other things like it. The exact imprint or representation of his nature. This is who Jesus is. And so to know Jesus is to know God, which is the fulfillment of what God has been promising all, all along. You can know me. First observation. Thus the second one follows from that, and that his eternal life is knowing Christ. To say that you're a Christian is to say that you have eternal life, to say that you're saved, say that you've been born again, however, whatever phrase you want to use here. It's also to say that you know Christ. You can't have eternal life without knowing Christ. If you know Christ, you have eternal life. All Christians know Christ. All Christians have eternal life. Knowing Christ. And thus we see that this knowing of Christ, third observation, is a very, very intimate thing. When the Bible speaks of knowing, as you know, it speaks of it in the context, often, of sexual intimacy. And it isn't that the Bible's a prudish kind of book. It it certainly isn't. Read it. Read the Old Testament. You'll find that you become embarrassed. Sunday school teachers in the second and third grade are often saying, how do I explain this (laughs) on this passage? And I always say, hey, that's why I don't teach. Uh, great. Uh, but uh, I went to adults, you know. So I do this, so I don't have to do that anymore. But um, that's, that's your gift, as I say. Um, but um, it's not a prudish book, but it's because the word no fits so well. When it says Adam knew Eve, it means he was intimate with her. There was nothing hidden between them. The next line after Adam knew Eve in Genesis 4.1 is a discussion of the children that were born. So we know what they meant. And so when we speak of knowing God, it's, it's an intimate relationship with him. It isn't simply knowing about him, being able to make, take a multiple choice test on God and pass, but it's actually knowing him, that he's had dealings with you and that you've been involved in his dealings and you now know him. Those who know Christ are those who know sins forgiven, for instance. Because he's worked that in them and they say, yes, I know Christ. Therefore, I know that he's the savior of confessed, repentant sinners and thus I know him. Therefore, I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that God is with me because I know Christ because I know that Christ is God with us. And since I know him, therefore, God is with me. To know him, to have dealings. God has had dealings with us, personal dealings with us. You know, if you read a manual on how to drive a car, and someone comes to you and you say and says, Do you know how to drive a car? You should really say no. Now, if you've driven a car a while successfully, um, may out put some of us out, but successfully, then you can say, Yes, I know how to drive a car. People oftentimes say to me, you know, do you know so-and-so? And I have to admit, no, I only know things about that person. I've heard about them. I may have seen them, but I, but I don't really know them. 
But once I've met them and have a conversation with them, and somebody said, do you know that person? I could say, yes, within this boundary. I, I know them because I've had dealings with them. I've been involved with them. I, I know them. And, and when God says, you can know me through Christ, and Christ says, you can know me, he means that it's an intimate thing. He said, dealings with us. And it's an intimate dealing, and it's also, next observation, a spiritual dealing with us. Now, oftentimes when we hear the word spiritual these days, it just means that somebody had a warm feeling, you know, or, or that they're a little bit mystical or somewhat strange, uh, or, you know, kind of a touchy-feely person, and that person is a spiritual person. But the Bible doesn't speak of being spiritual that way. When the Bible speaks of being spiritual, it means that which comes to us, that is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, when Paul's speaking about the spiritual man, as he puts it, he's speaking about a person upon whom the Holy Spirit has come and bring and has brought light, or you would say it in another place, new birth. That's a spiritual person, one upon whom the Holy Spirit has come. Spiritual things are things that come from the Spirit of God. That is in this realm of spiritual. And so the relationship that we have with Christ, the knowing of Christ that we have, isn't a seeing him with these ears, hearing uh, with these eyes, hearing him with these ears, but it's a knowing him spiritually because the Holy Spirit brings this to us. For instance, and again, this is review for you. Uh, in John in chapter 14, Jesus speaks of this very thing. In John 14, verse 23, uh, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And you think, how could that be? How is it that God the Father and God the Son can come and make their home in us? We know that Jesus will ascend and be at the right hand of the Father, so how can he come and do that? And we know the Father is around, but how can he make his home in us? Jesus goes on to say, in verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring uh, to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That is, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will come and bring the Father and Son to you. For instance, in chapter 16 and verse 12, Jesus says this, I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is, the Holy Spirit will come and mediate the very presence of God to us. So when Jesus says that he's going to come and be with us, Jesus says he's going to come and live in us, he means all that in this spiritual realm, in this spiritual experience, by the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of truth, or as he puts it in another place, the Spirit who is the Lord. The Holy Spirit will come and bring Christ to us that we might know him. He's going to teach us everything about Christ. He's going to give us a heart that enables us to grab a hold of Christ. And as Paul writes in Galatians in chapter 4, verse 19, that Christ will be formed in us. All right? So it's spiritual. Last observation before we move on. Last observation is this, that there's an already aspect to this knowing Christ and a not yet aspect to this knowing Christ. 
you know, Paul says that he desires to know Christ. But I think if you went up to Paul and says, but don't you already know him? He'd say, well, yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have eternal life. I know Christ. I know sin's forgiven. I've been walking with him. But I don't know him as well as I will know him. I don't know him as well as I desire to know him. In fact, my whole life is arranged around knowing Christ. Nothing else really matters. That is, I count everything else as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Nothing else really matters in comparison to knowing Christ. So my whole life is, 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 is around knowing him. Yes, I know him. That's the already part of this. But there's a not yetness to it. In fact... There's a not yetness to it until glory, until I finally, as he says in verse 11, which is the ultimate goal of his life, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. At that point in time, I'll know him. Why? Because I'll see him face to face. At that point in time, as it reads in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we will see him and we will be as he is, we'll be made like him and we'll know him. Whereas in the John 17, 24 passage we looked at a few minutes ago, when Jesus says, Father, I want them to, to, to see my glory and to be with me where I am. Well, that's the point. The resurrection, all will be made new and we'll see him face to face. We'll be like him. We'll know him. And so it's Paul's heart's desire to see, to get to there. And he no, notice in verse 11 it says, by, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Uh, that doesn't mean Paul is uncertain. He just don't, doesn't know how that's going to play out. He doesn't know how his death will come. He, he, he doesn't know if it's going to come quickly or later. He doesn't know if it's going to come while he's in prison or some other place. It doesn't, he doesn't know if he's going to be suffering. He doesn't know what, what kind of providence will come to where he'll die. So he says, whatever way I get there, uh, what I desire is to know Christ, therefore to attain to the final resurrection from the dead. So, this is the fulfillment of all that was promised to know God, to know Christ. We know that it's an intimate thing. We know that it's the same as having eternal life to know Christ. We know that it's spiritual that is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And we know that it's now, but it's growing and it finds its ultimate fulfillment and consummation in the resurrection from the dead. So what do we do now? Notice what he says. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Essentially, Paul is saying, so what I'm doing now to know him better is I'm making his life my pattern. You remember when we looked at uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, they talked about the life of Christ, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, his, his death by crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. That we said, that's the very life of Christ. Now Paul is saying, I want that to be my pattern, that to be my model. Except this, Paul wants to start at the resurrection of Christ. He says, the first thing is that I want to know the power of his resurrection. Then I want to share in his sufferings so that I may attain to the resurrection. See, Paul doesn't want to start on his own. He says, no, 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 I want to start where Jesus left off. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And you might say, well, what is that? What's Paul referring to in the context of the power of his resurrection? Turn to Ephesians in chapter 1, a couple of pages to your left. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul prays, beginning in verse 16. 
Notice what he prays. Ephesians 1, verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, I think the NIV puts it, that you may know him better. See, what, what Paul's really after here for them, and no doubt for him as well, is that God would grant to them the Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, to know God. Now, how would they do that? Well, he lists some things they should know, but then in verse 19 he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? He's saying, when I want to know the power of his resurrection, that's exactly right. I want to know the power that comes to us because Christ was raised from the dead. I want that power at work in my life. And you say, all right, what is that? Turn to Romans and chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Again, in the book of Romans now, we come to a point in chapter 6 where Paul's built the case that we're all sinners that we all need Christ um, and that there is justification, peace with God through faith in Christ. And now he's beginning to take up this argument that is hypothetical, that he brings, rhetorical, that he brings, that says, well, if our salvation is by grace through faith, then shouldn't we keep sinning so that God's grace would simply abound? Verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. In other words, he's saying... If you understood what I've said in chapters 1 through 5, you wouldn't even ask that question. Um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How do you not know? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There he's using baptism really as a metaphor for our being united to Christ. The word baptism we get hung up on in the 21st century church. We're probably still hung on, on, up on it since the last century, uh, but, uh, uh, but it's used often metaphorically in Scripture. You know, when Jesus says to his disciples, uh, are you prepared to undergo the baptism with which I'm about to undergo, meaning his death? That was a metaphor for his death. So here it's just this being united to Christ. And so verse 4, he says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, this power of the resurrection is the power of God now to walk in this newness of life. The old dying with Christ, now the power of the resurrection of Christ is that power towards us that comes to us to be able, that enables us to walk now as Christians, following Christ in newness of life. Verse 5, we have been united with him in a death like his, I'm sorry, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The power of the resurrection is the power of God that comes to us having broken our enslavement to sin that enables us by faith to walk in newness of life. 
That's what Paul wants. He's saying, listen, if I'm going to know Christ, then I must know this power. If I'm going to really know who Christ is, I'm going to have to know him as the one who's come to break the power of sin in my life. Pay for its penalty, but also grant me the power to walk, to live this out, to know his, the power of his resurrection. Chapter 8, for instance, in verse 10 of Romans. But if Christ is in your life, I'm sorry, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. Same tune, second verse. Same kind of idea. The Holy Spirit comes to bring Christ to us that we might know him. What is it that we're going to know? Well, in addition to all the other things, we're going to know the power of his resurrection, which is the power that raised Jesus from the dead, enabling him to give life to our mortal bodies that we might walk in newness of life. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live by the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrected Christ to walk in newness of life that we may put to death these evil deeds and walk in in newness of life. Colossians in chapter 3, very quickly. Colossians chapter 3, um, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, united to him in his death, united to him in his resurrection, to be able to walk in newness of life. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, when Christ died, you were united to him. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory to know him. So what do we do in between? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 12, put on, then, as God's holy ones as, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, that is, put on Christ. When Paul prays that he would know Christ, he says, in order to know him, I've got to know this power that has broken my enslavement to sin, the very power that raised him from the dead, this very power that brings me newness of life, this very power that enables me, this grace that enables me to walk by faith in newness of life, so I can put to death the old and put on the new so that I can walk with Christ. That's what he wants to know. And he says, and he says, the more I know that, the more I know Christ. And the more I know Christ, the more I know that. And the more I know that, the greater I will rejoice. All right? Are you with me? All right. He wants to know that, but not only that. Notice, Philippians, back to Philippians. In verse... Uh, chapter 3, in the middle of verse 10 again, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He says, I'm willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, whatever I must suffer in order to know Christ. Because in the midst of that, whatever I give up, whatever I suffer, whatever I sacrifice, whatever goes from me, I know will be compensated isn't the right word because it's not merit. But I can say we'll be more than overcome 
with the blessing of knowing Christ. When we speak of suffering, I must say, I speak from a deficit position in the sense that I'm not certain I've suffered terribly much. Certainly not like the apostle has suffered for the sake of Christ. He lost, he says, all things. He may have been speaking a little general there, but he's lost all kinds of things for the sake of Christ. I'm not sure that's true of me necessarily, at least that I feel. And some of you may understand that growing up in America in this particular generation, it's hard to say we suffered the loss of these things in the same sense the apostle did. I've been beaten for my faith and so forth and so on. There's been measures of, of distress because I'm a Christian, because I've been misunderstood by people, because uh, I've been written off by other people and all of that. We've all experienced that. But, but actual suffering for the sake of Christ in the same sense the apostle did. I have to be honest. and I have to do this with a straight face so I can't say I've suffered as, as he suffered. I trust that someday I will. I trust that that may well be in, my, in our future, but uh, until it is in the same sense. But he says, I want to share in the sufferings of Christ. There are the specific sufferings that that, that the apostle undertook in order to move the gospel forward. And there were no doubt the general sufferings that we all suffer just since the fall, just because of sin. The scripture says of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief, a number of different experiences of Jesus, just experiencing the weakness of humanity. experienced the suffering of the sadness of the death of death of his friend Lazarus so he wept at his tomb he experienced the suffering of knowing that his father had been dishonored by Jerusalem and the Israelites and thus he wept over the city and he experienced the Lord Jesus did the great suffering obviously on the cross and Paul said whatever I must suffer it's worth it if you will to know to really know Christ But that's true. You see, some are suffering in the context of their faith in Christ because they know Christ even in the context of, let's say, a marriage. A marriage that isn't a happy marriage. A marriage that you're staying in not because your love is being returned but because you're doing it for the sake of your love for Christ and thus in the midst of that marriage you continue to persevere and you must continue to persevere because in the midst of that you see Christ will reveal himself to you in such a way as to make your sufferings worth it to where you look back and say, I'm glad I suffered for the sake of Christ even in the midst of this hard and difficult situation because I now know Christ and I know him better. Many who bail out of difficult situations like that miss out on knowing Christ better. Some parents are persevering in the context of love for their children and they'd love to bail, but don't. Why? Because for the sake of Christ, love your children as he commands us to love, as he invites us to love, as he tells us to love them. Why? Because in the midst of all that, you see, in the midst of all that and the suffering that comes from, and the sacrifice that comes from loving for the sake of Christ, you come to know him better. Some are suffering in the context of business because you're being honest or because you're you're being written off in certain relationships because you're a Christian. And in the case of that, you see, continue to persevere in the midst of that. Be that Christian in that place. Why? So that you come to know Christ. And at the end of that, you'll say, Whew, that was worth it. I lost money. I lost position. But I know Christ. That, you see, is what drove the apostle. He says, Christ 
is the one of whom it said, he is of surpassing value, though I suffer the loss of all things. It's a great verse. There's a lot of great verses. Um, One that I'm thinking of, John chapter 14, verse 21. The Lord Jesus says this. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, or show myself to him, or disclose myself to him. Jesus says, listen, if you obey me, if you walk with me, and to obey in this context the commands of Jesus is, just, is to love each other as Christ has loved us. He says, if you do that, then that shows that you love me. And if that's true, then I'll reveal myself to you. I'll show myself to you. Not visibly, spiritually, but don't you see, in the midst of following him, in the midst of obeying him, in the midst of praying that that the power of his resurrection will come, that will enable you to walk in the newness of life, so that you can love as Christ has loved Jesus says, in the midst of that, you'll know me. But you know, sometimes there's nothing more painful than loving. As Christ has loved. It was painful for him. And it will be painful for us as we sacrifice, as we die to our own selfishness, as we put off the old and as we put on the new. He says, now in the midst of that, you want to know me, and share in the fellowships of the sufferings that come from love, and you'll know me. Psalm chapter 17 and verse 15. After a time of difficulty, the psalmist ends with this last verse of this psalm. He says, As for me, I shall behold your faith, faith in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He's saying, all that I really need at the end of the day is to see you. That will satisfy me. And the apostle's saying, all that we really need at the end of the day is to see him, to know him. Because there's nothing that satisfies like that. Don't worry about the suffering that comes along the way. He will give you the power that comes from this resurrection that gives new life that enables us to obey him. And when we do, we'll know him. And that will satisfy. You say, all right, now, how long does that take? When do I begin? And how long does that, does that process last? Uh, that's next week. Let's pray. Father, as we make our way down this text, the Lord Jesus continues to shine more beautiful day by day, thought by thought. And so I pray that you would enable us to know him, that we would know the power of his resurrection, that we might walk in newness of life, that power that is towards all who believe that we might walk in newness of life. And as we do, that we would see him more clearly, even as we experience sufferings.
Father, I pray that that be true of us. Give us that spirit of wisdom and revelation that indeed we might know him better. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As I do, let me encourage you to mingle some with one another uh, after the service before you go to lunch. Maybe even find some you can invite to lunch or hook up with for lunch in these days to help by fellowship sustain you. Uh, The response to the benediction is the response we've been using through this uh, wander through Philippians 3. And that is, my righteousness is from God. Hallelujah. For you recognize, you see, that it's not your righteousness, but his. It's his righteousness that he imputes to you. It's his righteousness that even he imparts to you as you walk in newness of life. That response to the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who was able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy, to only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, my righteousness is from God. Hallelujah.